what I have learned is um, not to be anxious about what you're doing, to try and be as clear as possible as what you want to say, and take as much time over it to get the message as clear, as understandable, and unambiguous as possible, and that takes time. See, in the heel of the hunt, you can't write for anybody. You can only write what, what you want to write. And if you specifically write for a particular audience, say, you're never going to get it right. And you're, you're following a myth because you don't know what that audience likes. If you're true to yourself and do what you're inspired to do, that's as much as you can do really, and you try to market it yourself and push the boundaries and get things happening. I feel sometimes when I go looking for performances here and there, I'm regarded as some kind of a leper, another nuisance, you know? But I don't mind that anymore. I do my own thing and they do theirs. And I've been very lucky. The voice of composer John Kinsler, recorded in 2015 for the RTE Lyric FM radio series Cross Currents. And this week, with the help of some friends and colleagues in music, we remember composer John Kinsler, who passed away last November at the age of 89. I'm Yvonne Ferguson and this is Amplify, episode 65. You're listening to John Kinsella's Symphony No. 6 with the RTE National Symphony Orchestra and conductor Prunchis Odin. And we invite you to join us for this very special celebration of John Kinsella, his engaging music and his rich contribution to musical life in Ireland. Composer John Kinsler leaves such an incredible musical legacy with his significant body of work. Known affectionately as the Irish Symphonist, with 11 symphonies in total, the 11th being premiered by the National Symphony Orchestra in November 2019, when John was presented with the National Concert Hall's Lifetime Achievement Award. John Kinsella has been commissioned by, among others, the Irish Chamber Orchestra, the RTE National Symphony Orchestra, Dublin International Piano Competition and the Arts Council of Wales. In addition to the 11 symphonies, his body of work includes a cello concerto and a fifth string quartet, many solo and chamber works.
Born in Dublin in 1932, John Kinsella pursued two successful careers in artistic administration and in composition. He joined RTE in 1968 and balanced both these careers until 1988 when he resigned from his position as head of music at RTE to fully devote his time to composition. John Kinsella was a member of Age Donna and his numerous works have been recorded on Chandos, Naxos, the RT Lyric FM label and Irish Chamber Orchestra label. In this special episode of Amplify, our tribute to John Kinsella, we move now to a conversation between Seamus Crimmins, Jerry Keenan and CMC's Jonathan Grimes. Jonathan also spoke with Catherine Hunke of the Irish Chamber Orchestra. We'll hear their reflections on working with composer John Kinsella and on performing his music. Joining me here in the Contemporary Music Centre is Seamus Crimmins, former head of RTE Lyric FM and RTE Performing Groups, and Jerry Keenan, chief executive of the Irish Chamber Orchestra. I guess just to start, Seamus, how would you define and assess John's legacy and contribution to music in Ireland? It's a big question. Um, you could divide it into two parts. He, John was a wonderful administrator uh, in terms of music management, but then he he also was this amazing composer who sustained compositional interest throughout all his adult life. Um, his narrative, I think, is really interesting, coming from Inchicor, being encouraged by his father, um, through recordings on the radio, what you call, I think the radio position in the house was called the Magic Place. A familiarity with scores as well, been taken to concerts. So you feel that he's tremendously homegrown, like in, in a real Dublin sense, um, a family that where interest was cultivated and nurtured. And I think that applicability continued through his life in the sense of, you know, he, he adopted his father's dedication uh, to music, even though the father was had an amateur interest in the, in the subject. But John, you know, forfeited a very good job uh, at, at Player Wills, where he was a computer programmer to go into RTE. But that move opened up huge horizons for him um, because of the interest in, if you like, contemporary writing in a continental sense. It acquainted him with the uh, international rostrum of composers and it put him in a place where his abilities could be recognized and fostered by people who could actually make things happen, mm. like Hans Valdemar Rosen, like Jared Victory, like Colin Stavely. So all these great names, you know, in, in RT's history, uh, recognized in John a real compositional talent and nurtured him. And understood, I, I, I'm speculating, but I, I think they understood how John would like to develop. Mm -hmm. Like what John liked doing and how he liked doing it mm -hmm. is something which I think permeates his entire kind of creative output. Jerry, when did you um, get to know John and, and how far back does your kind of association or relationship go? Long way back, long way back. Nearly in a previous lifetime when the Ice Chamber Ox was based in Dublin, I think I became the youngest manager there at around 31. And we were based in a little garret in uh, Kildare Street. But the leader of the orchestra then, who I'm quite sure was involved in, in helping my application because I would worked with her a lot, was Trace Timoney, who I had a wonderful connection with. She was the leader of the orchestra. She was a, I was a great buddy of her sister, Mary Timoney, who ran, ran the youth orchestra uh, with Anton Timoney. So we, we had that uh, big connection. And then... A couple of years after Trey's married John. So that was the start of a really lovely, lovely relationship. I just uh, immediately was struck by him 
clearly he was a very talented man. Clearly he was very intelligent, but he was very ordinary. He was very Dublin. He was very approachable. And I just loved it um, from that point of view. But he turned up at many, many concerts. And of course, that was the start then of uh, of looking into his music and, and playing a lot of his music. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the real attractions of, of John's music was it was technically brilliant. And John... Uh, obviously did massive research. He knew what was good on an instrument, what was the right register, what fingering would work, you know. And it's funny when you've been in this game a long time, you know, you talk to players and they'd say, doesn't sit right. That was never said of John's music. That's something that that is quite important, Seamus, to John's whole practice, that he had a very deep connection and love of the whole tradition of music. And you know, for for John, music seemed to be a very kind of immersive world that, you know, he experienced both as a listener and also as a player, as an amateur player. I think it was that probably that early exposure to uh, some great symphonists, which made a huge difference to him. And he would talk even in his up close to his death. In fact, he was still talking about the impact of hearing um, Beethoven 7, for example, which he thinks is just perfection, you know. What does he call it? Lean and fit, I think he refers to that. And it's that leanness and fitness which seemed to, even, you know, all those years back, seemed to make such a deep impression on him. There was something in that openness he had. I, I asked him at a public interview when he was given the National Concert Hall Award, Did music find him or did he find music? And in some ways, I think there's a meeting of those two. There was something in his destiny, I think, from a very early age where he was thinking not just of the enjoyment of the music, but in a kind of way how he was going to participate in this. And his participation unfurled over many, many years as a student, as a viola player, um, as someone who um, navigated his way into composition, but found lack of fulfillment from what he was being taught and needed to find his own way. And there's something about that, about John. He needed to find his own way to do everything. So that meant basically not presuming anything, not becoming anything, not developing an edifice of any kind, either as an arts administrator or as a composer. But it had to be him. And is that, I think that deep sense of honesty like within him and fidelity to whatever he valued most. And I think that came from his very early years. I think the other thing about his composition that always struck me was he was never afraid to use bits of other pieces uh, he, he had written. There's one thing I probably would never be forgiven for, which is probably by the viola section in Irish Chamber Orchestra. I remember being at the premiere of, I think it's Quartet Number no. 7. I hope I have the number right. But the last movement anyway, whatever it was, uh, was just fantastic, incredibly difficult. I said, that'd be a great piece for string orchestra, John. Hmm. And he produced it, and it's 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 actually on a recording we did, Prelude into Cata, mm. but it was a fierce, fierce viola part. I'd say he did it deliberately, but what a piece. Yeah. And we used to bring that on tour a lot.
you really feel that when you hear in particular his string writing, you, you feel the affinity, the personal mm-hmm. affinity with that sound, with that world, when you're kind of immersed in a string section and, and, and it really comes through in, in John's writing. You know? Big time. And, and like we were, and like this is, I should explain because I went, I jumped forward 30 years there nearly or 25 years, but in the present ICO where I work now for the last 15 years, um, we were really lucky to uh, commission Symphony Number no. 9, which I think is just, it's just a fantastic work. And it's work we we dip into quite a lot. And uh, funny enough, we were, were trying to come up with something for, uh, you know, some sort of a fitting tribute to John maybe later in the year, but just to keep keep his music going. And the, the, the slow movement of that is just, I think, is one of the, the great pieces. And again, we were lucky to record that in our studio with him and he was down there and it was just a very, very joyous time, you know. My name is Catherine Hunker and I am the leader of the Irish Chamber Orchestra and have been since 2002. What in particular are your memories or or experiences of John's work and working with John as a musician with the Irish Chamber Orchestra? Well, over the years we played a few of John's works and there would have been the homage à Clarence that he wrote for his friend Clarence Myerskopf. But I suppose the one that I remember the most is his symphony number no. nine. It was a big, thick score, and we were asked to perform it in Bantry, but I was directing the orchestra. And I spent a considerable amount of time with that score and a considerable amount of time on the phone with John. And then we met. Uh, we had a lovely afternoon. John invited me to a cafe near where he lived. And I just remember that as a very sunny, warm, calm meeting. It's always, it's a very delicate thing, meeting up with a composer when you've already got quite a lot of your own thoughts. And you have to be so careful not to impose those things onto the composer because it's theirs. And our job is to interpret that and to weave it into, into gold, of course, but as a base, it has to be what they want. And I found that process extremely easy with John because he was so respectful of musicians. So there was no there was no fight and that it wasn't about um, his ego fighting with mine. <laughs> it wasn't it was the opposite of that, actually. It was about him saying, well, what do you think? I intended it. He always knew what he wanted. And that's something very important. It's very difficult for a musician to work with a composer if the composer doesn't doesn't know exactly what they've written. And he knew exactly what he'd written and he could. Uh, explain what it meant to him which is absolute heaven for someone interpreting and then if I was to say how would you feel about this bit like rushing forward or could we take some time here he was so open to to those sorts of suggestions so it was it was real mutual respect well, there's no doubt that um, he understood string writing he knew exactly how to how to write for string instruments and um, at times it, it could be quite hard 
<laughs> and I would complain about that to him, but he knew very well what was possible and what wasn't. symphony the string symphony number nine what is is so lush I suppose that's that's when someone when someone really knows how to write for strings then you it creates that sort of body of sound and he knew exactly what he was doing and that's a great honor to to play it was a great honor to play his music and it was also a great honor to to spend time with him because it, he was a man of such very great integrity there is that sort of relationship there that there has to be a mutual respect on, on either side, isn't it? And I'd imagine that it's quite a delicate balance to get right, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very, it's very delicate balance. As a composer, when you write, when you've written something, then it's time to let it go. And when composers try and hang on too much to what they've just written, it's very tough for the musicians because you really don't have any creative input yourself. And at the same time, if the composer doesn't have very clear idea of what they've, what they want and what they've written, it's very difficult for the musicians. It's this balance between this is what I've written, this is what I want, and then it's hands off. And then the, if the composer's there to ask questions and to consult, it's really fun. As you were saying with John, you know, once a piece was out there in the world, that was his job done. Yeah, he was really, he was wonderful about, about letting things go. And uh, and seeing what what we came up with, he would say he would say things like when we met, he would say things like, um, it's like you know, I'm interested to see what you do with it. That's music. That's music to a director's ears, because then you can then you can dream, and you don't want to ever have the feeling that you might upset them by doing by doing something wrong. And so so when a composer like John gives you his music, then it was more more a case of. Um, I've done this and now let's see what you do, which is, I think, wonderful. In terms of John as a composer, Seamus, how would you characterize his music? And also, you know, we've we've spoken a lot about his personalities or you've spoken a lot about his personality and given given us some insights. How would you recognize some of those maybe personality traits or would you recognize some of those personality traits in his music? I think you certainly would in the the kind of rigor, you know, and the self the, the the self demands he made on himself, both as a person, like in his everyday work, um, in administration and management as well. Um, he had beautiful handwriting. I don't know if you remember his handwriting it was very meticulous and very intricate and 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 quite small, but really beautiful, beautifully elegant. Um, I was with him uh, because I did a pre-concert chat with him before the 11th Symphony was premiered. Uh, I went to the rehearsal and he was sitting in the stalls and I joined him. That was a really big, I thought, I felt honoured actually to sit there at one of the last rehearsals and watch him there with the open score. And 
I hope he will never mind me saying this, but I felt he was as a, it was like as he was as anxious as a, as a young man would have been yeah. facing a, an international conductor and the orchestra in front of him. Um, he was as anxious that everything would be well, that what he what he wrote was what was actually in his mind, which correctly transcribed, and that the players were challenged but f- treated fairly, that yeah. nothing was demanded of them, which was distasteful in any possible way and I felt that I loved that experience of sitting beside him and just seeing his you know piece of magic really come alive Mm. in front of us and he was nervous before the premiere that evening I remember as well Mm. um he was that's that's a great credit to him Mm. you know aged I think he was then 87 Mm -hmm. and he was still you know, that excitement, that thrill was there, but also that slight apprehension or nervousness that this is a major occasion. But it's just been fantastic just to go back through his life and see where all, you know, where the threads of all of that began and how they came together. And certainly his leaving RTE when he did was a blessing for us all in many Mm. ways. Mm. That the SFA Orchestra, which he wrote in, what, 1980, I think, became the first movement of his first symphony. Mm. And suddenly, in the uh, mid-early 80s onwards, this um, fascination with this great structure, in many ways an unfashionable structure, many people would think it was, you know, Mm. the symphony was finished Mm. many, many years ago. And suddenly, you get these great exponents which uh, Sibelius, of course, was his great love and passion. But others like Shostakovich and so on, um, you think these enormous, like, and suddenly he's a, he's a participant mm. in, that, in that thread of history, which we can enjoy and live through. You know, it's really interesting, but Seamus mentions rigor um, and the, also the, the, the lovely story of sitting with John and his nervousness. The one thing I always remember was if when a piece was finished, I mean, you're totally right, but he, he was waiting to see like, oh, my God, did they like it? You know, and he was very reluctant to go up and even take a bow. Unlike some composers, they'd be nearly out of the seat and running up, you know, um, and John was he was so humble. And I think that's the other extraordinary part. But apart from the rigor, and I totally agree, it was rigorous. But to me, so many of the slow movements, of things they're written with such passion. Um, and I, I think. You know, it wasn't always very obvious with John, but I think he was a very passionate man. He was very passionate about his family and his children and his wife. And, you know, it was there was always that in the background. I think it's it's reflected in so much of his music. And that lovely piece he wrote, the homage at Clarence, I just think it's beautiful. So he, he was very involved in, in in the notion of what he was writing for. continue our special celebration of John Kinsel's music with a conversation between CMC's Jonathan Grimes and Seamus DeBarra, composer and senior lecturer at the Cork School of Music and author of a forthcoming book on John Kinsel's symphonies. I was always attracted to Kinsler's music from the first time I heard it. I met him briefly 
when he was commissioned by the Choral Festival here in Cork in, I think it was 1974. And then I heard on RTE broadcasts The Wayfarer for Chamber Orchestra and the Third String Quartet, which were written in the mid and late 1970s. And I was immediately attracted by the sound world of these pieces. I thought that there was a unique voice and I found it intriguing. So when it came to deciding on, after I finished my work on Fleischmann as to what my next project would be, uh, Kinsella appealed to me as a composer whose work certainly merited closer retention than it had been given because a whole series of symphonies remarkable by any standards in any country had received only the most perfunctory attention and notice uh, I thought which did them nothing like justice as to what the achievement actually was and I felt that attention needed to be drawn to them as to just how good they actually were. You mentioned you, you know the sound world striking you as being intriguing Talk to me a little bit more about that. What is it about that sound world th- that you were drawn to? The crucial thing with any good composer is this ability to project personality in the notes. And this is true of certain composers. If you take a composer like Arnold Bax, for instance, there is an immediate personality apparent. The minute you hear a couple of chords, you know you're able to place them immediately as being only possible to have been written by Bax. And with Kinsella, it was the same thing. Now, at the time, it was just the sound itself that attracted me and the way it was manipulated. It was only later on looking at the scores, I understood how that sound was achieved. And that's the intriguing thing about the analysis, of course. And that's one of the reasons why I was attracted to analyze Kinsella's style and approach. It was a way of investigating why I was so attracted to this music and what made it what it was, in other words. What were the elements that went in to create this individual sound world? He was entirely self-taught as a composer, apart from some rather unsatisfactory lessons with Eamon O'Gallaghor in the 1950s. Uh, around 1960, he was a member of a chamber ensemble, which included several performers who later had professional careers as musicians, including Colin Staveley, who became leader of the RT Symphony Orchestra, and Pranchias Odin, who was the cellist. And they were all aspiring composers as well at the time. So they all wrote pieces to be performed by the ensemble. And Kinsella himself started writing music again around 1960 for this group. And he wrote a string quartet in D and he wrote a trio for clarinet, viola and cello. Those works are very diatonic, very tonal. But what is interesting about those works in relation to what he did later on was the fact that you can see already there's this desire to fill a large canvas There's a scope and a span in the music. After those works, he then started writing in a serial style. And that was the beginning of his exploration with serialism. He'd always been interested in serialism. And he had studied various textbooks on modern composition. And so he started with, there was a chamber concerto and the two pieces for string orchestra that he wrote for the Irish Chamber Orchestra, first concert. And for about 10 years, there was a a large 
uh, a fairly substantial output of works in a serial style or adapted serial style. In 1968, he joined RTE, and as he became more and more familiar with what was happening in contemporary music at the time, in the 1970s, he became more and more disillusioned with the way the turn that it was actually taking. And he realised, I think, that this was not a path that he wished to follow in his own music. So he began to rethink the serial style and rethink it in a very individual way. And what he did, to put it in a nutshell, was to find a means of adapting serialism so that he could release certain forces of tonal attraction from within the manipulation of the tonal series. Now that seems terribly technical. And that is what is apparent in the works that he wrote after 1973, 1974. You get the beginnings of this rethinking of serialism and this attempt to find an accommodation between serialism and tonality. I think the serial idiom in the 1960s in Ireland was associated by a certain generation of composers with a certain opening up of Irish society, opening the windows. As Irish society began to expand socially in the 1960s, this uh, sense of excitement, of new prospects opening up, and serialism, say, for Victory, for Shorsha Bodley, and for Kinsella himself, who were the ones who probably took them most seriously. Now, their commitment was temporary or at least intermittent, shall we say, it wasn't in the least bit ideological that this represented a, a fresh approach. Undoubtedly, it gave him a way of approaching musical material which he found congenial. And it's very interesting that while other composers in the later 20th century who had already been serialists and abandoned serialism to write in other styles, Kinsler never sought to abandon the serial approach. What he did was he radically rethought the serial approach. So he kept the basic framework of thinking about music in terms of the 12 note row and in terms of what its possibilities would offer. And he adapted that as his style developed rather than abandoning it. Mm -hmm. So you can see quite clearly the progress of the style from the works that attracted me to his music first, the Wayfarer and the Third String Quartet. That's essentially the same approach as you find in the first symphony. As each symphony progresses, you can see that each one takes the last one as a point of departure as he moves forward in this progressive adaptation. There's no question in those works of settling down to a way of doing it which you now keep from work to work. It's the searching mind all the time as one work proceeds into the next. 
So he's very much aware from the point of which he finishes one symphony and begins the next one of some of the issues or some of the problems that he is has either solved or is going to solve. So there's that continuation. Uh, yes. Now, I wouldn't say this was necessarily a conscious, verbalised, thought-out process for Kinsella. I don't think he was a very verbal composer. I think he felt it was his job to write music. But if anybody wanted to talk about it, well, that was entirely up to them. But he didn't really feel the need to do much talking about it himself. Mm. And if you look at the programme notes that Kinsella supplies for his own works, they are laconic to the point of being totally incommunicative about what the music actually contains. Even in the Third Symphony, with its extraordinary title of Joie de Vivre, which the work certainly conveys, I think, he never explains what he means by the title. He never says what it is that this title is intended to convey, which you would imagine for composers who are far more attuned to the gimmick of a piece and getting it across to an audience would be the first thing they would actually pick on. No, he doesn't actually mention it at all. There's this continuous forward movement in the music. It's always going to somewhere else. And the obvious parallel, and he hasn't been mentioned uh, so far in this in, discu- in discussion, is Sibelius, which was for John his great, you know, musical mentor in, 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 in terms of the, um, the symphony. Do you see that connection there in terms of that forward momentum and, and the influence of Sibelius on, on the writing? There is an influence of Sibelius on the writing, yes, but not the superficial one that people tend to notice. Mm. There was an atmosphere about Sibelius's music, I think, of this positive buoyancy, if you like, this open-air feel of energy that Kinsella found extremely attractive. And not only Kinsella, I mean, a whole whole section of a music-loving public, of course, have found this attractive. But um, Kinsella responded to this very deeply. What is fascinating is that on a deeper level, while there is this desire to recreate the sense of forward propulsion in the music, which is not unakin to Sibelius, the means by which it is done isn't really Sibelian at all. And when you actually think of the fact that Sibelius is one of the big influences on Kinsella's style, but serialism is the other one. Now, that's a very unlikely combination of influences. And Kinsella's unique perspective on both of those influences and his extraordinary ability to reflect one through the prism of the other is what produces the extraordinary individual sound world of his music, I think. He started breaking up the 12 notes into constituent segments, either three, four note segments or two, six note segments. And from these, he evolved scales and so on. So what you have is this extraordinary approach where serialism starts becoming a kind of modality as the style actually moves forward. It's a way of imposing some kind of constraints. Yes, that's exactly what it is. I think for Kinsella, the point of the note row is that it was a point of departure. It was a starting 
place. That was his point of entry. That particular configuration of notes was his point of entry into the sound world of each new work. The 11th Symphony, for instance, the most recent one, it actually is one of the most interesting, because there's a work in which the note row is very much in the background. The 12 note row, its place or its existence can only be postulated as a hypothesis in the analysis. But once you actually postulate it, it makes sense of what actually happens. work which is about C major but is not in C major and what actually happens in that work is that you have uh, a set of material which postulates C as a tonal centre arising out of this configuration of pitches and which also postulates G as a figuration and both of those are minor so you will have C minor with an E flat and G minor with a B flat and then the co conflicting and opposed to those is E minor but the way the music is worked out, E minor can't be accommodated within the other two. Now, the three pitches together, C, E and G, is the triad of C major. So while C and G can be accommodated as what one thinks of as the end, E is omitted from the very end. And at the very end of the symphony, the disruptive, maverick tonality of E finally slips into place and the work ends with a total surprise and a return of this E minor feel, as though you have not accommodated. If you don't accommodate the triad, if you can't accommodate C major, well, the argument is unfinished and goes on. That gives you some idea of just right up to the very end and up to the last symphony, how, how original Kinsler's mind was, that you write a work which is about the failure of the tonality to achieve the C major resolution and what the consequences of that failure are going to actually be. Whereas if I can say in the seventh symphony, C major is also the key, but that's an even more fascinating work because there the C major can be attained at the end but only offstage by a chorus singing wordlessly, which functions as the overtones to an open C string on the viola, which is like the foundation of everything. And you must remember the viola was Kinsler's instrument. This is the fundamental open string of the viola, which can give rise to this pure C major triad, but only somewhere else.
And the extraordinary thing about that Seventh Symphony, which I think is one of his finest pieces, is that this is actually brought off perfectly. If you can imagine the technical problem finding a logical reason to bring a choir in at the very end of an instrumental symphony. What is the logic for bringing this choir in at the very end? Now Kinsella not only finds the logic, but he finds the psychologic to make this absolutely the right thing to do at the right time. You're listening to a special episode of Amplify, celebrating the music and musical life of composer John Kinsella. Seamus Tabara there in conversation with CMC's Jonathan Grimes. And we need some help from our listeners as we continue to share new music from Ireland through this podcast. Subscribe via any of the podcast platforms such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you listen on Spotify. And now let's return to the conversation with Seamus Tabara. The climax of his most modernist, if you like, trend was there were two works. One was a work called Montage 2 for orchestra, which pushes the boundaries for him personally of what he was prepared to do to the limits. It's an extremely successful piece, I, I think. Uh, very sectional, but it's very dramatic, and the pieces are juxtaposed to produce a very powerful rhetorical effect. After that, in 1973, 73, I think, he produced A Selected Life in memory of Sean O'Reilly. And this was a setting of poems written by Thomas Kinsler, his brother. It's very much in the same approach as Montage 2. There's a lot of aleatoric writing, there are note rows, uh, and it's set for enormous forces, uh, the biggest he ever wrote for. After that work is when you actually have the change of style. Mm. It's as though he has followed the serial thing and the way the certain aspects of the current avant-garde were going to a certain point, saw where that was leading, didn't care for where it was leading. He, so he decides to retrace his steps and recalculate the angle of his departure from that slightly earlier point. So he moves back, he starts rethinking the note row and how he's going to manage it and moves off in a different direction. His experience, you see, in RTE meant, meant that he was exposed to an enormous amount of contemporary music, probably far more. In fact, he was in a position to hear more than most of his contemporaries in Ireland were at the time. And not just because of what would have come to his attention as part of the routine of his job as assistant director of music, but also because he used to represent RTE frequently at the UNESCO International Rostrum of Composers. And there he heard 
everything that was the latest product from all the radio stations. Yeah. It did strike him very quickly what an extraordinary degree of sameness there was about all the compositions that were being submitted year after year. And it also struck him, and he was very disconcerted by this, that for many of the composers, the latest techniques were far more important to them and manipulating the latest techniques than actually saying anything as a composer. I think that the whole experience acted as a catalyst for doubts that had been growing in his own mind. You talk about this being a very courageous step to take in that you're sort of deviating from what was, I suppose, perceived to be the preferred approach of a young composer in, in the 60s and 70s to do something that maybe resulted in perhaps on the surface a more conventional approach or a conventional type of music did take some courage to do? Uh, yes, except that I wouldn't describe what Kinsler was doing as being in any way conventional. Yeah. In fact, when you look into the music, you see that it is far from conventional. In fact, it doesn't adhere to any convention. The, the sound world of Kinsella's music might be less disjointed, less strident. Though he can be strident at times when he wants to, but conventional, no. Why do you think he settled on the symphony as his main means of musical expression? Because it's not like there was, as you have written, um, an unbroken tradition in writing symphonies for, amongst Irish composers. So maybe talk to me about why the symphony suited his personality. That's interesting because I do think that's also a question of temperament and pers certain musical personality. And certain composers seem to be much more attracted by abstract forms like the symphony, uh, the string quartet, purely instrumental forms and who are not necessarily attracted to um, either program music or music which has a verbal content. Kinslow did specifically say to me that he always felt awkward setting words. Now, he has done so with distinction, but not very often. This wasn't his natural response, that there was a verbal dimension to the music he wrote. What interested Kinsella was the musical development of musical ideas, the purely musical development, so that the, it was a self, completely self-contained, self-referential musical piece with no necessarily external or obvious external things. And that's a matter of, I think, musical temperament. It is curious that he was a curiously unverbal person. He didn't explain his music. He didn't explain himself. He just wrote the music. It came with no paraphernalia, no conceptual paraphernalia of any kind. It was just the notes. I think that's one of the things I also responded to in, in his, by the way. There is a, a fundamental sort of artistic honesty about that. There is something about his entire career, which is even his change and the way he seemingly in opposition to the current trends in the 1970s, how he decided he was going to follow his own path quietly. There were no announcements, just quietly changed and did his own thing. There's something about that which speaks of an artistic integrity a desire to be true to what his own vision actually was. Do you think that John was 
conscious of or interested in his role within the symphonic tradition in Ireland? Well, he did love symphonies and he listened to lots of symphonies. The symphony was one of his big interests. I can remember when I drew comparison between himself and the Finnish composer Jonas Kokonen, who wrote four symphonies, which also balances this Sibelian influence with serialism. He was intrigued. He'd not come across this composer before. He said, I must listen to this music straight away. I must find something out about this. So he's always on the lookout for new things. But was he aware of a, of a tradition in Ireland? I I would imagine so. He was would have been conscious of what his position was. After all, I mean, for his generation, there wasn't a vast tradition to be part of. Mm. Irish music in the 19th century sure was extremely thin. He was certainly very conscious of his position, I think, in the European tradition of the symphony, in the great Western tradition of the symphony, I think. And he very consciously took that. When he wrote the first two symphonies, you have two large, over 45-minute works four movements with the traditional disposition of movements, a sonata, allegro, first movement, slow movement, scherzo and trio and a substantial finale. And they are, he's clearly positioning himself there in those four works in this mainstream post-romantic symphonic tradition. After doing that, the next symphonies from there on go off in completely different directions and they experiment with form. The third is in two movements. The fourth is in four movements, but their the internal dynamic of the movements is completely changed from the first two. Uh, the fifth is the one for speaker and solo baritone on the 1916 poets. And then you have six, seven and eight, which are all one movement symphonies. And then you have nine, which is for strings, which has its own unique structure and 10 and 11 which are two three movement symphonies which look back to classical orchestration and classical size orchestra and take that as a different departure so from after the first two big four movement symphonies at the outset of his symphonic uh, career once he's established i can do this then the symphonies start changing and he starts manipulating the form depending on what he wants to say so there's actually an enormous variety of approach across the 11 symphonies and on that, you mentioned the 11th and the 7th earlier as, as being among your favourite works, if I can put it that way. Are there any other particular ones that you're drawn to where you feel he was at the height of his creative powers? Yes, I think the third symphony is one of the best. The first movement of the third symphony is arguably the single best movement that he wrote. I actually think it's a tour de force of energetic propulsion and sustained movement. It doesn't flag for a second. And that symphony itself, that whole joie de vivre symphony, that in itself is a fascinating thing as to the two movements and why the slow movement is what it is and how it actually manages to be successful in what it does. One of the things he does is the two movements aren't just juxtaposed in that symphony. He starts with a long prologue, as he calls it, for solo bassoon. And in that prologue, various intervals and structures are actually given out and hinted. And they, that's like the germ of the entire work is contained in that bassoon solo. 
then there's between the two movements, there's an intermezzo, as he calls it, which picks up the bassoon solo and links the two movements together. And then in the epilogue at the very end, the bassoon solo comes back and ties it up just before the very end you get a ref final reference. So the two movements are held together by these threads. Finally, in reflecting on his legacy and many achievements, I mean, are you hopeful that his music will strongly endure into the future? I think Kinsella was certainly a man who wrote for now. I'm not sure what his views on posterity were. I never asked him questions like that. <laughs> but um, the music exists. It is there. It can't suddenly disappear. So it's not as though it's going to wear away by natural means over time. So it will always be there for people who want to come and perform it and explore it. I suppose that's as much as one can actually hope for. For him, he he wrote the works and he cast his bread upon the waters. Mm. It was very much a question of I've written it and off it goes and it's now in the hands of fate. So he seems to have been remarkably untroubled by posterity, shall we say. What seemed to interest him was the work at the time when he was writing it. What his view of his legacy would have been then is an interesting question. I mean, when you think of a poet like Yeats, for instance, who constantly revised, constantly went back and constantly rewrote poetry so that you have a variorum edition of the poems, which is, you know, four times as substantial as the collected poems because of all the variants. Mm -hmm. Yeats was obviously extremely conscious of what the final effect of the collected poems is actually going to be. But I don't think Kinsella thought like that at all. Final bars of John Kinsella's Third Symphony, the RTE National Symphony Orchestra with conductor Purnchis Odin. Our sincere thanks to Seamus Dabara, Seamus Crimmins, Jerry Keenan and Catherine Hunka for their contributions. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Amplify, the podcast from the Contemporary Music Centre Ireland.